This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonderful preaching that we have been able to sit under. We pray that it would be used by you, by your spirit, convicting us and causing us to change by your power. And we look to you now asking that you would bless all of these breakout sessions and that as we study your word and as we look to grow more salty and bright that you would produce the fruit that we desire through your power and grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the topic in here, in case you're looking for the wrong topic. There are still chairs. Come on in. Everybody scoot in. Take your chairs and... uh, Yep, there's... uh, There's still chairs, so... The topic is breaking the jaws of the wicked, confessing Christ in the public square. And our text... We're going to have a couple of different texts. Um, Ephesians 5 starting in verse 5 in Job 29. We'll start with Job. So if you're opening your Bible, go ahead and turn to Job 29. And the, the, of course, the, the topic is, as you all are expecting it, is informed by the description, right? The description says, True religion is caring for the widow and the orphan in their distress. Everyone loves soup kitchens and crisis pregnancy centers, but we're also to expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. And this is true. I mean, raise your hand if you you hate crisis pregnancy centers. Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? Even, you know... Uh, It's rare that a a non-Christian would say that they hate crisis pregnancy centers. There are some, of course, that do. But what we want to do this afternoon is we want to answer this one main question. What does it look like to be salt and light in the public square? Right? What does does breaking the jaws of the wicked mean in, in the context Job? is uh, spoken of as having done that. He claims to himself have done that. And obviously being salt and light is by definition with non-Christians. Right? Now, I I don't mean to say you're not salty, you're not bright among Christians, but the the whole idea behind being salt and light in in the various passages that talk about it Um, is that non-Christians are seeing, non-Christians are able to uh, experience taste that we're different somehow. And so um, if we are not salty, if we are not bright, not filled with light among non-Christians, then we have lost our savor. We have hidden our light under a bushel. And so that's what I mean for starters. Salt and, uh, salt and light requires that this is going on among, in the presence of, witnessed by non-Christians. So that's the start. Now, in the public square, though, does not simply mean where non-Christians can see you. If that's all it meant, then we could just say being salt and light. And I could just talk about being salt and light. But being salt and light in the public square, we've got to understand what we mean by the public square. So the public square just... uh, Being salt and light means 
among your circle of friends, family, co-workers, people you don't know, you randomly meet at public places, that's all just salt and light. Now in the public square means something more particular than that. We don't only mean our behavior when we're in public places. The public square includes all of these things, but really the question is how should Christians deal with things that are in the public eye, that are generally uh, known, that are affecting the general population. So politics, the economy, tragedies like hurricanes and oil spills, See, these are things that are going on that, that are being interacted with in the public square. They're being dealt with by the larger community of, you know, the nation or the state or maybe just the city. But regardless, these are public square types of things. How should Christians deal with these things? Current events, hot topics in the culture like uh, homosexual mirage, global warming, abortion. What should we as Christians be doing as we, as we interact with these things? Should we be interacting with them in any way? <clears throat> um, law, religion, morals and behavior, how we ought to behave, uh, right and wrong, philosophy, all of these things are things that take place and are debated in the public square. Are you all with me so far? So the public square is not simply just how are you going to, to live when you're in public. The public square is dealing with things that people are dealing with. But dealing with them as Christians, being salty while you're dealing with them. That's what we want to see. How should we do that? How can we do that? So that's the public square. And here's the thing. You are part of it. You can't escape it. You're in it. It's, it's all around you. Um, you're a Christian in the public square every day, whether you like it or not. The only question is, how can you be salty while you're there? How can you be salty while you're there? So like I said, our two texts that we're going to be looking at are uh, from Job 29 and Ephesians 5. Let's start with verse 7 in Job 29. Job is speaking and he, uh, if you don't know Job, whenever Job is speaking in the book of Job, uh, up until like chapter 40, he's complaining. <clears throat> or he's not complaining, he's justifying himself. That's what he's trying to do, okay? And so he's trying to justify himself and he's talking about what kind of a man he was in our passage. So that's what's going on. Don't think negatively about of Job. He's trying to justify himself. There's problems there, but, but what we're going to hear about him right now is true and in fact is good. <clears throat> Job 29, starting in verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. And the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. To me they listened and waited, and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. 
They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. This is the word of the Lord. Now Job's focus as he justifies himself here, is how he acted in the public square. That's what he's describing. Each, each section of Job justifying himself, he kind of focuses in on a different thing. In this particular one, he's talking about how he acted in the public square. He helped the weak and the needy, the poor and the orphans, those with no one to help them, right? His behavior was righteous and just. If you go back and, and, and look through this text, You'll see all of these things. <clears throat> he broke the jaws of the wicked and saved people from them. And he spoke wisdom and truth after seeking it out <clears throat> through study. Now, those are four things, and we're going to focus on we're going to focus on those four things in this passage as we study it. And what we learn from Job is what saltiness in the public square looks like. And so when we get to uh, breaking the jaws of the wicked, we'll have a bigger context of what the work is that he's been doing. And we won't have, uh, we won't have just this one phrase pulled out of context. Um, so saltiness in the public square is four things. First of all, saltiness serves the least of these, not yourself. And this is as good a place as any to say, this message has to be understood in the context of the other sermons that we've heard already, all right? You know, you, you, think, about, you think about the uh, rebuke of our selfishness and of our envy that we've just received, and that has to, that has to inform my whole, my whole sermon in your minds, I'm not going to pretend like you haven't heard these things, all right? Because um, that's going to help me be able to skip through faster, okay? <laughs> um, but it serves, this, this saltiness serves others, not yourself. For starters, that's what we see Job was doing. He was serving other people. He was, he was sacrificing his own time, his own energy, his own money for the service of others, in particular, those who were needy, those who were weak, those who were helpless. And so this is the first step of being salt and light in the public square. It's, it's caring for other people while you're out there, right? It is looking at those who are needy and recognizing they're needy. It's looking at them and seeing what their need is and then meeting it. All right? My summary of the political parties is as follows. Democrats can be summed up uh, in this demand. I want your money. Give it to me. Now, you may be offended, but Republicans aren't that much better. <clears throat> Republicans can be summed up this way, this is my money and you can't have any of it. And libertarians, in my opinion, forgot to grow up and are repeating the mantra, you're not the boss of me, I can do whatever I want, it's a free country. <laughs> now, why do I insult all of the political parties right now? Well, because, listen, every political party claims as it's, you know, claims that, that they are the ones who truly care for people, right? The Democrats hate the Republicans because the Republicans are greedy and selfish and, and don't care for people. And the Republicans sneer and look down their noses at the Democrats and say, well, at least we actually care for people. And, you know, and, and the Libertarians say, well, if you actually cared for people, you'd let them do something. And <clears throat> each is actually, when you begin to examine the political parties self-serving at the core. So you take the idolatries of our age and money is 
such a central one that we'll just deal with one because we don't have time for it. Money is such a central idolatry for us that when you look at the uh, when you look at any one of the political parties, you can boil down what they're doing to just a different circumstance that they're living in and how how greed and desire for money plays out in their circumstance. The Democrats don't have any money and so they want it. Now, of course, I'm ignoring huge swath of Democrats. I know that. But, you know, they, they don't have money and so they, but they want it. And so they vote Democrat because the Democrats are going to give it to them. The Republicans have it already and want to keep it for themselves. And so they're voting for people who are going to not make them have to give it to anybody else. And you can say, well, isn't that just what Doug Wilson said? It's very good that they not be stolen from in this way. And I say, well, yes, of course, it's excellent that, that we not steal as a nation. But of course, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not Republicans are greedy and selfish or not. Right? right. So, <clears throat> If we're going to serve the least of these, it doesn't have anything to do, per se, with political parties. And, and of course, I'm talking about political parties because we're talking about the public square, right? Being a Christian in the, in the public square doesn't mean joining a political party. Are you with me? It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with politics. Now, of course, it has everything to do with politics, but it has nothing to do with being uh, a part of some greater organization that's accomplishing its goals. As, as we've already heard, we are Christians first and foremost. Our political party is Christian, right? So who are today in our country, in the public square, the least of these? That's got to be the first question. If we're going to be serving the least of these, we've got to know who the least of these are. Well, obviously, children who are being aborted, murdered, these are the least of these. Right? So if we're going to take the first step of serving the least of these by, and therefore being salty in the public square, we've got to recognize that that means serving those who it's an awfully difficult question to figure out how to serve them, isn't it? Okay, that's fine. It's a difficult question. But at least we recognize these are the least of these, and there ought to be some service going on. Secondly, children who are fatherless. You know, we want to talk about orphans, but I think it's a much better way to discuss uh, the, those who are needy by, by talking about the fatherless. Now in our passage, I think it says orphan, but all through scripture you've got discussion of the fatherless, the fatherless, the fatherless, and we have more fatherless people in our nation today than you can shake a stick at. More fatherless men and women in this room, I won't make you raise your hands, but it's just all over the place. So in the pub, I mean, if it's here, that there are needy and those who are needing to be served in particular ways, then obviously in the public square, this is a group that is very much in need. So how are we going to serve them? Well, again, not an easy question, but at least we've got some, we've got some categories, right? Um, abandoned mothers. Of course, this goes along with children that are fatherless today is their mothers who have been abandoned along with them. Um, then there are orphans, you know, n neither father nor mother. Uh, and this is, this is around the world, including in the United States. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, the sexually abused. These are the people who are the least of these, the weakest, those who are most, most set up for oppression, right? They have nobody to defend them. They're, they are, they are um, uh, you know, when you think about the, when you think about the, the political, uh, 
the, the politically correct way of speaking about race and stuff, and you talk about institutional problems, institutional, um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for now? What's that? Yeah, institutional discrimination, historical discrimination, and stuff like this. It, the, the, the idea behind that is that what's, is, is something that Christians have to be able to acknowledge and to recognize and then to deal with appropriately. And I don't mean deal with by being politically correct and buying into the solution that the world offers. I just mean that, um, that there are categories of people who are set up for being exploited. They are set up for not receiving the justice that is due them. Okay? They are set up because they are the weak, they are the helpless, they are those who are most uh, helpless against attack against those wicked men who would oppress them. So we could go on and on with, with lists and lists of, of those who are the weak and the helpless, those who are oppressed today. Um, but, I, but I need to move on because we've got to get to breaking the jaws at some point. And I need first to hit on what else we see in Job's life. Job helped the helpless. He served other people, in particular those who were helpless. He was not self-serving. He was serving others, those who were helpless, those who had nobody else to serve them, nobody else to protect them. Those were the people, in particular, that he served. So we've got categories of people, right? That category, in particular, was the category that he served. What else did he do? Well, he lived a holy life. His righteousness and his justice, this is him being holy in how he lives. If you don't live a holy life as a Christian, are you salty? No, you are uh, something disgusting, not salty. If you think about food, right, you're rotten not salty. If you are, um, you are, you are uh, not a bright light to the nations. You are a, you are some sort of, you know, uh, sucking, sucking light of darkness that you would see in somehow portrayed in a movie, I'm sure, like, like Lord of the Rings. I don't know. But you're something very different from what you're supposed to be. If you're not living a holy life in public, if you're not living righteously, what you're doing is you are undercutting what you are supposed to be proclaiming and you are, you are shaming the name of Jesus Christ rather than glorifying it and proclaiming it, which is what being salt and light is supposed to be. So when we look at Job and we see that he was living a holy life, it's very important because what we understand then is that he's not undercutting, he's not accepting bribes while talking about righteousness and justice, right? He's not talking about protecting the weak and the helpless and the orphan while at the same time, um, uh, you know, trading on, uh, on a brothel. Over here, you, you see what's going. You see how that could never play in his narrative of himself. He had to be living a righteous life in order to make these claims of what he was doing, and he had to be living a righteous life in order to serve the weak and the helpless and the needy. Because as soon as you're not living a righteous life, you are abusing other people. Sin is always on the attack against other people, all right? I like to tell people over and over again that sin is always, um, sin is always uh, nonsensical. It, it's, it's always irrational. It never makes sense to sin, but it also is always deadly and not just for yourself. Because as soon as, as 
Job is claiming to be protecting the weak and the helpless while living a life of sin, he is causing the weak to stumble. He's not protecting them. He's leading them into sin if he's not living a righteous life. And so his personal holiness in the public square was absolutely essential for him being able to serve and for what we'll see coming, what we've already mentioned, uh, breaking the jaws of the wicked. So ultimately, uh, we have to start by serving others and by living a holy life if we hope to be salty in the public square. You think about the number of people who have fallen, who were public figures, who were known for their, for their battles in the public square, for their saltiness in one way or another, either opposing, uh, well, you just, just take your pick. All right, maybe opposing corruption, maybe opposing, and maybe, maybe we're talking about Christians, maybe we're talking about politicians. You know, politicians opposing corruption, and it comes out there, what? Corrupt. Corrupt. Surprise, surprise. And then, you, and then you hear about people who were, um, you know, who were on the warpath against gambling and against, you know, lotteries and this, that, and the other. And, and, then you, and then you see the pictures of them playing the slot machine like crazy or something like that. It comes out they've been gambling all over the place in secret and they're addicted to gambling. And then you've got people who, you, you know, who have been preaching against sexual immorality and then it comes out that they have... Uh, that they have been committing adultery and they've got a child over here and this well okay so what happens every single time one of these men who has been in the public square fighting for the the salt of the gospel okay and it comes out that they have not been living a personal holy life they subject the name of Christ to shame. They cause others to stumble. They, in particular, hurt the weak and the helpless, those who are unable to have, those who don't have anybody to protect them and to, and to, and to say to them, you know, it's very sad that so-and-so fell. But God is holy. He is in his heavens and he is ruling. And he, you know, they have no one to bring them through what you have caused them. The, the damage and the harm. That's who the least of these are in the spiritual world, right? The fatherless are those who have nobody to care for them and to bring them through the loss of an idol. And I don't mean idle in, even in the, in the bad sense. I just mean, the, the, you know, a man they looked to, a man they looked up to. And, you've, and, you, and then there's immorality, and those are the ones who stumble, the least of these. And what does that, what does that mean for us? Well, we know for, for us, the warning is those who cause one of the least of these to stumble, it would be better for them what? Better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and to be cast into the sea than to cause one of the little least of these to stumble. So we must serve the least of these. We must live a holy life. And then we must confront the wicked. We must confront the wicked. Breaking their jaws is how Job describes his confrontation of the wicked. Now, <clears throat> I'm sorry, some of you are in here and I, ha I have to uh, break some bad news to you. Okay, this is not a call to arms. All right? That is not what Job is doing and that's not what I am here doing. Job is describing his, his work against the wicked, against oppression in this, in this way. Right, um, and what we're we're not talking about going out and literally punching people and breaking their jaws, much less taking up arms. All right. Now I've got to say is I'm I'm going to explain 
I'm going to explain what it is next, but I've got to say it because it's a temptation, uh, especially for you young men, all right, to want to solve this problem the way that Peter wanted to solve the problem of the Lord Jesus in the garden. All right, well, we got our swords. All right, well, we've got our guns, right? Isn't this part of what we've been fighting for? Let's draw them. Well, what is Job actually doing? Listen, the, the civil authority, as we've already heard, has been given the sword to punish the wicked, not you. You have not been given the sword to punish the wicked. Batman is a bad role model. Okay? Batman is a bad role model because he has not been given the sword. The civil authority has been granted the sword. And if you think back to the era that Job was living in, okay, and you think, well, what was the civil authority? Do you know? Do you have any idea what the civil authority is? When was Job written? We're talking way, 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 way back, right? What, what kind of, um, okay, so, so you've, got, you've got some examples in the Bible. Abraham, right? Abraham is traveling around. He's, he's uh, somewhat nomadic, um, but he's got a large household, lots and lots of animals, lots and lots of people that are living with him. How did, what was the civil authority in that context? Well, yeah, Job, in this, you know, Abraham was, and Job was, exactly. See, we're, we're talking about an era where the men were of the city, the men of the, of the local area, the family, it was in its very nature, they were the civil authority. They were the ones who had to act to do something about a wicked man in their midst. So for starters, Job is the civil authority. And it's not just Job is a man and therefore all of the, and all the men got together and therefore they were all civil authorities. No, Job in particular was clearly uh, a, a high, played a high role in the civil authority, didn't he? You see him describing himself as the princes and the nobles shutting up when he walks in and all of a sudden you realize, Oh, this was an important man. Well respected, therefore he had a particularly great role in the civil realm, in the, as a civil authority. And so when he talks about what he did meeting out justice, it's in his role as a judge. When he talks about breaking the jaws of the wicked, it's as a civil authority that he's doing that. Now that doesn't mean that this is not a, that, like all of you guys who aren't in the civil authority, who haven't been elected or uh, appointed, as Stephen said, right, um, are off the hook from this call, all right? But we do have to note that, the, that is, if we're talking literally about breaking the jaws of the wicked and we think, well, Job would, Job would actually punch somebody in the face and break their jaw, which, by the way, I'm not convinced of, but we'll get there. Even if you want to make that claim, all right, he was doing so as a civil authority. Now, it just so happens that this is at least mostly metaphorical. Now, this may not be obvious to you. When you think of Job breaking the jaws of the wicked, we tend to think, I, I at least tend to think literally about it, all right? But let me ask you a question. What good does it do for Job to break the jaws of the wicked? They're eating people. <laughs> They're eating people, exactly. Now, this is what you've got to realize. When he, when he says that he broke the jaws of the wicked, he, he follows that up by saying he took the prey out of their mouths. So they're eating people. If he literally was breaking their jaw, then they literally were eating people. In which case, I don't doubt that he broke their jaw. But I don't think either one of those things was literally going on. This is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that we that we're perfectly capable of understanding and that we've understood in other places in the Bible as a metaphor. All right? When you think about Jesus and you think in the New Testament about the warning against wolves, what's the danger? The, well, the danger is the wolves eat the sheep. 
right? And we are sheep, and so we want the jaws of the wicked, the wolves, to be broken, right? So that they can't eat us. Now, we're not worried about breaking the jaws of false teachers in a literal manner. What we want is them to shut up. And if you break their jaw, they'll shut up. That's what, it rec that's what it represents. When you break the jaw of the wicked, you have broken their power. You have removed their ability to cause harm. That's what he has done by breaking their jaws. Because it was their jaws, it was their teeth that were the danger. And so when their jaw is broken, if the teeth represent the danger, the jaw represents the power to cause, to inflict harm as a wicked man and therefore when they have their jaws broken they have had their power removed they are no longer able to oppress they are no longer able to inflict harm on the the innocent the weak the helpless their prey are now safe so <clears throat> here we see this metaphor in proverbs Proverbs 30, 14 says, There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. The afflicted and the needy. You see this again? The, the wicked oppress whom? Is that right? I just put an M on the end there because it felt right. <laughs> Answer the question. The, the afflicted, the oppressed, the needy. This is who the wicked attack. Now, is that any surprise? I mean, look, of course that's who they attack, right? Because why? Because they're the easy ones. <laughs> it's, it's obvious. They're wicked. Who does the bully pick on? The weak. Those they know they can get away with picking on. Those who they know will not fight back. And this is why all it takes to, to stop a bully from picking on you is going like this. And all of a sudden they're like, oh! Because they're wicked, lazy men who want the easy pickings. So, <clears throat> with Job... Um, we see the same thing. He was out serving the weak and the helpless. How? Well, part of the way that he was serving them was by giving them what they needed. But a central part of what he was doing in order to serve them was break the jaws of the wicked. Remove the wicked from power. Take away their ability to hurt those who are weak and needy. And that's what we've got to figure out how to do. If we're here to, 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 to hear about breaking the jaws of the wicked, that's really what the question comes down to. Is it possible for us today to go about the work of removing the power to inflict harm on the weak and the innocent and the helpless from those who are wicked? And the answer is yes. Okay? We've got good, we've got good news. There is a way forward for us in this work. So what does it look like? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> obviously, we need men like Job in the government. Just, just for starters. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ease into, or into the uh, the more difficult things, right? But, but you're all capable. Well, most of you are old enough to vote, I think. All right. So you're all capable of working to put men like Job into office, where they can wield the sword in a righteous manner, as Job did. So there's something we can do. Some of us ought to run for office. Some of us ought to be becoming police officers. Why? Well, because this is part of the work of Christians. It's being in the public square, fulfilling the public saltiness work of being righteous. Being righteous and opposing those who are wicked in the government as the civil authority like Job was. But of course it extends far beyond this. <clears throat> we want... Um, we want 
judges, we want police officers, we want senators, we want representatives, you just go down the line. We want all of them. We, we want men like Job in those positions. Or another way of putting it is we want men who, as we learned in Deuteronomy, are not what? Covetous, Covetous envious. And then they will do what? They will not use their power to afflict, but rather to protect. They will not use their power to oppress and, and through corruption, taking advantage of the weak and those who cannot help themselves against them. But instead, they will speak into the, the system and it will be light, <laughs> right? It'll be salty, and they'll be seeking justice and righteousness. We need to keep moving. Um, yikes. <laughs> uh, so we want them writing. We want them writing just laws. I mean, I, I, I mean, I could go on and on. All the things that can be done in the civil realm by those who are elected—it's it's astounding. There's tons that can be done. But let's move on. Um, the weak and the helpless really are being destroyed by the wicked still today. We already saw some of the categories. And we're going to look, we got to figure out exactly how that happens. Um, but first I want to just go back to my statement. We have the power to stop it, to affect it. We have the power to make change. And I want to defend that by looking at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I'll just read it to you. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is power, is it not? That is power. And you say, well, but it's not, it's not power of the flesh. And after all, ought we not to protect them in the flesh? And I say, yes, yes. And, and, and there, are, there are occasionally times where you get to step in between somebody and the bullet. Okay? There are occasionally times where you get to step between the bully and the bullied. All right? Uh, and this is, this is good and right and true, but that's part of the power that we've been given. It's, that's not fleshly warfare when you do that. That is spiritual warfare. That is using the tools and the power that you've been given by God that we read in, about in 2 Corinthians here. That's the power that can destroy fortresses. In other words, it's not your body that makes the difference in that circumstance, even if it is your body that takes the bullet. Our warfare is not of the flesh. So what is this powerful weapon that we've got? This powerful weapon that we've been given is not our ability to vote, despite the fact that I just got done talking about how we want to put people into office, right? Our powerful weapon that we've been given is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is the weapon the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, the sword of the Spirit, this here, the Bible, this is our weapon. It's not of the flesh. And it is divinely inspired, and every time it goes out, it does not fail to produce fruit. And so this is our weapon, and the gospel is the wisdom of God. And of course, you all know that the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, it's what? foolishness to the world. Utter foolishness to those who are watching who are not of his kingdom. So let me just take a moment here and pause and say don't be intimidated by them looking at you and scoffing and saying what foolishness. Okay? We know that's what they think. The message itself, the wisdom of God says that's what it, they'll do. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be, don't be turned off by that. Don't be scared by that. 
but we've got so much more. What else did Job do? We've already seen that he served the least of these, that he lived a holy life, that he confronted the wicked. And now we're beginning to dive into how he confronted the wicked. And one of the central ways is that uh, his saltiness was filled with deep argument-ending, mocker-silencing wisdom. Job was a wise, wise, righteous man. He had true wisdom. Now, where do we see that in our passage? Well, <laughs> uh, he opened his mouth to speak and his speech dropped on them. They kept silent for his counsel. I mean, all through this passage, you see the, the acknowledgement of the wisdom that he had. But, and that it was argument ending. You know, that, psh, nobody spoke after he gave his opinion, right? <laughs> and how did he get that? He studied. He studied. The case that he did not know, he investigated. So let me tell you, young men, I know it's real easy to, to whip out your gun, buy a gun, get your, get your license, your permit, whatever, stick it on your holster, fine, I don't care, but practice. Oh yes, hours on the range, that's fine, whatever. Study, 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 study. This is how you become equipped. Job investigated the case he did not know. You're young. If you're anything like me, you don't know half of what you should know. Admit it and then start studying. This is so, so central to the, to the work that Job did in breaking the jaws of the wicked. How do you, you know, listen. You've got, to be, you've got to be wise enough to recognize not just that people are being oppressed, but how to end it. It's like the reforms that, that, uh, that we heard about. You know, there's reform and the reform of the reform of the reform. Because why? Well, because there's no wisdom in the reforms. The changes that have been made are worthless. What we want is Job's reforms, right? That's what we need. And how do you get that? You, you only get that kind of wisdom. You only get that kind of knowledge through study. So study, and you'll learn how to break the jaws of the wicked. So this is, so as I, you, you know, I, I talked about what this powerful weapon is, that it's the gospel. The gospel, this, the gospel is the wisdom of the world, of, of God. And... Salt and light, we know that's always referring to the good news, the gospel. We, we intuitively, if we've heard the term either one of them ever before, we know, oh yeah, that's talking about trying to get people to become Christians, right? People to, to learn and to see and they're, gonna, they're going to be converted. That's what saltiness and light is for, is so that people will become Christians. So I, so. It shouldn't be surprising that ultimately, we, we, when we, it comes right down to it, breaking the jaws of the wicked means the gospel is being proclaimed. Okay? Because this is the, the salt. This is the light. It's the wisdom of God that accomplishes great things. Not you and your big fist. It, can, it may seem obvious, but sometimes we can get confused into thinking that the primary goal is some sort of physical salvation. So, you know, we uh, probably, most of us in this room, look down on the social gospel because it's just dealing with people's physical needs, right? And, and, and that's really what I'm saying, you know, just dealing with people's physical needs isn't half enough. It's certainly, certainly part of what we are to be doing but it's not even half enough. And the reason is because it doesn't have the power of God in it. 
It doesn't have anything of the gospel. The social gospel has nothing to do with the salvation of people's souls because all it cares about is their body. Now, I can talk about the social gospel and everyone's on board with me, but here's what happens when we start talking about abortion. We suddenly, without even realizing it, we become social gospel people because all of a sudden, our whole focus is on saving the lives of individuals, okay? We want to save as many lives as possible in our, in our pro-life ministries, right? Well, that's, that's a good and noble desire, just like it's a good and noble desire to feed the, the, the homeless, right? And to clothe them. Good, noble desire ought to be doing it. But listen, if our goal in pro-life ministry is just that the most lives would be saved, we're all mixed up. The goal is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would transform the power and that lives would be saved through the salvation of people's souls. And this is why when, uh, when Andrew preaches at the abortion clinic, he preaches, <laughs> right? He's not just saying, hey, you know, uh, we'll help. Well, great, we will help. But there's ever so much more to it than that. There's souls at stake, not just lives at stake. And so um, I had a conversation with somebody one time. She'd been trained on uh, how, to, um, how to oppose abortion. But of course, what she really me meant was she, she had been trained on how to save lives. And that's it. Okay. So never shut the door on uh, on a conversation. Always leave the door open. Make sure that you don't offend. And on and on and on. And entirely a pragmatic, utilitarian strategy of how to save the most lives possible. Now, setting aside for, the, for a second the fact that it was bad utilitarianism, I don't think it would have worked. All right. The real problem here is what I ended up asking her. You know, I said, look, I've got to shut the door sometimes. I have to tell people that that's a lie sometimes, and that may offend them. Oh, no, I couldn't. Why would, you ever, why would you ever offend somebody? I said, well, for example, if you're talking to two people and one of them wants to hear what you have to say and the other one is trying to lead them to hell by telling them lies, I'm going to shut the door on them. And it may be offensive to them. But it's for the sake of the soul of both of them that those lies have to be shut down. <gasps> now all of a sudden we're talking about breaking the jaws of the wicked, aren't we? Do you see that? Because breaking their jaws is offensive. It's going on the offensive. And so at one point in this conversation, um, I asked, well, what is the central goal here? And it was a beautiful thing. She got it. It's the gospel. It's, it's that people's souls would be saved. And I said, exactly. Exactly. But then, of course, the follow-up question, is it possible to proclaim the gospel without people being offended? No, it's not possible, okay? So don't be scandalized by that. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> and it's our weapon. It's the goal. It's the center. And so if you pull that out, well then sure, yeah, you know, there's no sword, there's no offense, there's no help. There's no breaking the jaws of the wicked. There's no saving the prey from their mouth. And okay, yeah, some, some lives might be saved. And like I said, you know, some people might be fed too. That's all well and good, but it's not what we are to be about if our goal is to be salt and light in the public square. So crisis pregnancy centers are doing a good work. Give all you want to them. Volunteer there. By all means, but what you're not going to find them doing is calling people to repent of their sins and to live godly, holy lives in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. All right? 
or at least not the ones that I'm familiar with. And again, this isn't an attack on crisis. This is, this is why everybody likes crisis pregnancy centers. How do wicked men keep people under oppression? <clears throat> wicked men keep people under oppression by the doctrines of demons that leave people believing the lies that leave them vulnerable to oppression. Okay, so for example, let me step outside this country for a second. We've been reading stories about Ethiopia and missionaries in Ethiopia dealing with medicine men, okay? So the medicine, the, the medicine men or the sh whatever, you know, there's different names from different places, but <clears throat> they, uh, they demand money and sacrifices to pay off the demon, okay? They're rich, they're wealthy, they're powerful, and they have everybody living in fear and darkness underneath them because they believe the lies. So how do you break the jaw of the medicine man? You destroy the doctrine of the demon. You proclaim light and truth. And all of a sudden, what happens? People are freed. They're freed from the lie, and then they're freed from the jaws. Because the lie is the power in the teeth. The lie is that if they don't give the sacrifice, if they don't pay the money, then their cattle will die, their fields won't produce, the town will be destroyed, and on, it won't rain, and on and on and on and on. And this is just the doctrine of a demon. And, it's, and it seems so quaint to us, doesn't it? But it's so helpful to see the Africans putting things in the flesh that we've spiritualized and philosophized. Okay, because we've still got doctrines of demons here and we've still got people living under the lies of the doctrines of demons and falling into the oppression because they are weak, because they have no one to proclaim the truth to them. How do you break the jaws of the wicked? You speak the truth. And the doctrine that's central to them holding people under their thumb, it dissolves in the light of God's word. It's obliterated. It's shattered into a billion pieces. And everyone realizes, ah, there's freedom available. I don't have to live in fear of my ancestors anymore. I don't have to live in fear of being condemned by the... Uh, by the uh, the the uh, the university department of uh, uh, what 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 department would it be? What's that? No 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 the the, the office not even a department you know the the office the office diversity. of diversity for example right yeah you you don't have to live in fear of the office of diversity now that's news to some of you you don't have to live in fear of the office of diversity training or whatever it is in your, in your location, either at campus or at work, all right? You don't have to live in fear. You're free. You're freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to do the work you need to do. And that work is being the light that shatters the darkness, being salty. And that will break the jaws of the wicked wherever you are. In the public square, it will break the jaws. So. Right now we're browbeaten into accepting a murderous practice where men kill other men and themselves all day, every day <clears throat> for their own pleasure. What is this practice? It's a practice so dangerous that the World Health Organization just declared that every single man who does this should be taking antiretroviral drugs. This is the practice of homosexual sex among men. Okay? Now, how do you break the jaws of the wicked in today's context in America, here, in Bloomington, or wherever you live? You declare the truth. You shine the light on it and expose it. And you wake up those sleepers. You raise them from the dead by the power 
of Christ's gospel and he, his shining on them through you. Back in, uh, back in the 1800s when men wanted to preach to the slaves, the slaveholders weren't so keen on the idea. Something about the idea of you shall be free indeed and the truth will set you free and freedom and on and on and on, right? So the slaveholders just weren't so keen on the idea. <clears throat> and um, the preachers had a choice. Either they could give up their, their, uh, their audience. They wanted to preach to the slaves, right? So either they could give up their audience or they could compromise on what the, the message was that they were going to proclaim. And so, of course, many of them compromised the gospel. Now, this ought to sound familiar to you, because we've all been threatened that if we don't shut up, we're going to lose our audience. We're going to lose our ability to have any influence. Nobody's going to listen to us. All right? There's some differences in the circumstances and in which sides people are on of different things. But listen, it's the same thing. There's always been the threat. If you don't shut up, nobody's going to listen to you. So, so how's that work out if you shut up? <laughs> Nobody can hear. But, but what should they have done? If they didn't change the message such, such that the slaveholders were happy with it, then they wouldn't have the opportunity to preach to the slaves. And if we don't change the message such that our culture is happy with it, we won't have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to homosexuals. We won't have an audience. We won't have, nobody will listen to us. It's not like we've got newspapers and radio stations and all this stuff that we can just be out in the public and, and having these things. We've got, they won't print our editorials if we don't, if we don't change the message. If you don't shut up, nobody's going to listen to you. That's the threat. Faced with the same choice, in order to have an audience for the gospel, we need to not oppose homosexuality so that somehow we can save them, right? Is that what we want? We want, we want people to be saved. From what? From what? Exactly. I got two of you asking. From what? <laughs> from their sin, the sin that they're caught in, the sin that they're under the thumb of. And <clears throat> so this choice is a choice of whether we're going to break the jaws of the wicked or not. This choice is a choice of whether the gospel message is going to be a powerful message or a compromised message. And if it's a compromised message, it won't be the gospel message and it won't be the sword of the spirit. It won't be that sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It won't be the Bible. It won't be salty and it won't be light. It will be worthless, weak, useless. The violence of the wicked is dependent on people believing the lies of the empty philosophies and doctrines of demons that they propagate with their mouths. And so if you want to be able to break the jaws of the wicked, I said study. Study and then speak. Speak the truth. Don't be ashamed of it. Speak the truth to people. And that's why you've got to study, because as soon as I say speak, then you're like, I don't know what I'll say. Well, yeah. That's because you haven't investigated the case you don't know. So investigate the case you don't know, and then speak by faith. If we study God's word, we will have the word of truth to break the lies and effectively their jaws. And that's our work. That's what Job was doing. And this will make us enemies. I, yes, I, I'm, I'm not promising you that you won't have enemies when you do this. I'm promising you, you will have enemies when you do this. Because it is offensive. Do you think that we could like having their jaws broken? They don't. 
but God is powerful. Hear this psalm as I close. Psalm 124, a song of a sense of David. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.